Welcome to Tuesdays with Merton. I um, ask you to mute yourself if you aren't already muted, please. My name is Teresa Sandock. I'm a Servite sister and a member of the Tuesdays with Merton Planning Committee, along with Ellen Culp and Dan Horan. I would like to take a moment today to remember those who lost their lives and those whose lives have been forever changed as a result of the devastating tornadoes that struck Kentucky, Illinois, Tennessee, Arkansas, Mississippi, and Missouri over the weekend. Merton once wrote, compassion is the keen awareness of the interdependence of all things. We feel this interdependence in a painfully tangible way in the face of such natural disasters. And we see compassion in action in the outpouring of support from around the country. And now on to our program. Tuesdays with Merton is co-sponsored by the International Thomas Merton Society and the Center for Spirituality at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame. The webinars are aired on the second Tuesday of each month. You will be able to ask questions today using the, fat, the chat feature in Zoom. Please send your questions to the Center for Spirituality. And Dan Horan, is the director, will forward them to our moderator, Alan Colt. Dan is a Franciscan friar and director of the Spirituality Center at St. Mary's in Notre Dame. Alan is a professor of religion at Baldwin Wallace University in Ohio. So for best results, I recommend that you watch today's presentation and speaker view. Please note that we are recording this webinar and it will be available on YouTube and as a podcast in a day or two. This evening, we'll be treated to hearing Dr. Paul Pearson address the topic of Merton's humor and humanity. Unfortunately, Paul is unable to be with us in person. He had the opportunity, after two years of separation, to visit his elderly mother in England. We recorded Paul's presentation in advance and have invited two ITMS members to give a short response, after which we'll have time for questions. Before I introduce Paul, I would like to offer a short prayer in keeping with today's theme. It's a prayer that Pope Francis says he prays every day and says it helps him. It's a prayer for good humor by St. Thomas More. Grant me, O oh God, good digestion and also something to digest. Grant me a healthy body and the necessary good humor to maintain it. Grant me a simple soul that knows to treasure all that is good and that doesn't frighten easily at the sight of evil, but rather finds the means to put things back in their place. Give me a soul that knows not boredom, grumbling, sighs, and laments, nor excess of stress because of that obstructing thing called I. Grant me, O oh God, a sense of humor. Allow me the grace to be able to take a joke, to discover in life a bit of joy, and to be able to share it with others. Amen. And now on to Paul Pearson. Dr. Paul M. Pearson is director of the Thomas Merton Center at Ballerman University in Louisville, Kentucky, and chief of research for the Merton Legacy Trust. He has been at the center for over 20 years. He is a former president of the International Thomas Merton Society and serves as its resident secretary. He is also a founding member of the Thomas Merton Society of Great Britain and Ireland. <clears throat> he edited Seeking Paradise, Thomas Merton and the Shakers, A Meeting of Angels, The Correspondence of Thomas Merton with Edward Deming and Faith Andrews, Thomas Merton on Christian Contemplation, and most recently, Beholding Paragraph, Par Paradise, The Photographs of Thomas Merton. Paul may well be the only person in the world who has attended every single conference of the International Thomas Merton Society and of the Thomas Merton Society of Great Britain in Ireland. And now here is Dr. Paul Pearson speaking on the humor and humanity of Thomas Merton. Good evening. It's good to be with you all for Tuesdays with Merton. Okay. Having viewed them all since the beginning, it's nice to actually be sharing with you this evening. And I'll begin by sharing my screen here. Now, having just celebrated Gaudete Sunday and with Christmas rapidly approaching, when Teresa asked me for what topic I would like to talk about in this Tuesdays with Merton, I thought maybe a little joviality might be in order. Hence the theme for this evening, 
I love beer, and by that very fact, the world. The humor and humanity of Thomas Merton. After entering the Abbey of Gethsemane in December 1941, the most austere form of monastic life available to him at that time, Merton gives the impression that his career as a writer is over. Yet, as we're all too aware, decades after his untimely death, that was not to be the case. Even in some of Merton's earliest writings at the monastery, his humor, a key expression of our humanity, cannot be subdued. The Seven Story Mountain certainly contains many humorous passages. And reviewers in the United States found humor in the book, describing Merton's wit in various ways. Engaging, sure-fired, vigorous, high-spirited, warm, thoroughly American. In contrast, British reviewers were not so generous with an English Benedictine, Aylred Graham, describing it as intense, one-sided, humorless, propagandist, morally indignant. But before exploring Merton's humor in his years at Gethsemane, I want to remind you briefly of some examples of Merton's wit and wisdom in his pre-monastic years. One really has to begin with his artistic parents and his avant-garde upbringing. You don't have to look far to see Ruth Merton's Joy de Vivre, her lively and vivacious character, the descriptions of her love of dancing, or her delight in her baby son, clearly evident in the record that she kept of his early years. In the Seven Story Mountain, even through some difficult years, Merton can, with rare humility, turn his laughter on himself as he views his early life in sober but good-humored retrospect, recalling joyful, humorous times. And I'm sure most of you can think of passages where Merton's humor, where Merton's humor shines through in his autobiography. Certainly his description of the school chaplain at Oakham comes to mind. And Merton's acquainting his use of gentlemanliness with the biblical definition of charity in parody of chapter 13 of St. Paul's letter to the first Corinthians. Or again, during his time at Oakham, poems and prose pieces published in the school magazine provide examples of his humor. The cartoon that you see on the screen now or an example of one of the verses that he wrote at this time. Lines to a crafty septuagenarian. If in our socks we find a tear, we quickly have it mended. We hear that G.H. doesn't care, and his idea is splendid. He puts boot polish on his heels, and thus the aperture conceals. Upon Merton's return to the United States after his disastrous year at Cambridge, his initial companion was the cartoonist Reggie Marsh, who certainly influenced Merton's artistic output at this time. And Merton's serious interest in drawing cartoons can be noted as late as the year 1938, the year of his baptism, when on his declaration of intention for the US Department of Labor, he did, would describe his occupation as cartoonist and writer. So at that stage, putting the cartoonist before the writer and perhaps his choice of race, Scotch, is also a touch of humor. Merton's contributions to the Columbia Jester clearly show his skill as a cartoonist and as a writer of humorous prose and poetry. And we can also see the development of Merton's social voice, using his cartoons to critique the world of his time, as these examples illustrate. This one referring to the international scene with the line, 
don't leave him alone or he'll kick hell out of the cat. Showing Merton's awareness of what was happening in Germany with the rise of the Nazi party long before many people here in the States would have been aware of that. And also his awareness of political issues closer to home. Of course, the Mann Act is unconstitutional. It interferes with the pursuit of happiness. Now, the monastic community that Merton joined in 1941 was one of the most austere houses in the whole Trappist order. And I'd like to turn now and look briefly at St. Benedict's comments in his rule about laughter in the monastery. In chapter six, Benedict wrote, we absolutely condemn in all places any vulgarity and gossip and talk leading to laughter. And be not ready and quick to laugh, for it is written, the fool lifts up his voice in laughter. But one commentator on the rule of Benedict, Philip Lawrence, writes of these passages that Benedict is never very favorable of, of laughter or jest. But the chapter on Lent indicates that he was well aware that laughter and jesting were part of normal life. They are realities that can also build up or destroy. When a person destroys with laughter and jest, perhaps there is worse blame because that which should be joyful is being used for destruction. So that sense of joy and humor that is possible within the monastery reminds me of James Laughlin recording his visit to, to meet Merton at Gethsemane for the ver very first time. And this was a very novel experience for me, uh, going into a monastery, uh, which if I followed the uh, precepts of my mother, I would have cons considered uh, practically a place of the devil. It wasn't at all. It was a wonderful place. It was uh, full of fun and good feeling. I had expected in Merton to meet, you know, a somber-faced monk who uh, uh, strode silently uh, through the cloister and into the church, uh, uh, muttering prayers under his breath. It wasn't like that at all. Uh, from the moment I first came to the monastery gate and was greeted by a very jolly uh, brother gatekeeper, I saw that I had been completely misinformed about monasteries. This was a very happy place. And Tom Merton uh, was very happy. Uh, he was, I suppose this is a word which one may not use anymore, uh, but he was gay. That is to say, uh, he had a wonderful gaiety about himself and about life. Though that was certainly not the image held in the public imagination of this most austere manifestation of the monastic life. Often the founder of the, the Trappists, Durance, is pictured with a skull in front of him on his desk. A gruesome reminder of the often repeated phrase, memento mori, remember that you will die. And Merton himself writes of the grim smile of satisfaction that Trappist corpses have. And like Durance, Merton's abbot, James Fox, kept a skull on his desk for many years. That is, until he had a, vi a visit from the actress Loretta Young and her two boys, who picked up the skull and started chasing each other around Fox's office with it, making the teeth snap. After that, according to one of his secretaries, Dom James put the skull in a drawer, never to be seen again. Matthew Kelty, one of Merton's novices at Gethsemane, would often refer to Merton's humor in his talks and writing about him. And a number of times when I was present for such talks, he would look quite pointedly in my direction, as he said, and I quote, his humor I thought was British. He could be very cutting, maybe even sarcastic. The British, Anglo-Saxons, are pretty good at the put-down, 
public class. He could seem very British. His humor was on the dry side. One of my favorite examples of Merton's dry Anglo-Saxon humor was told to me by an ex-monk, Brother Pius. One day in the Gethsemane bookstore, a, visit, a visitor asked Merton if Father Raymond Flanagan was still alive. Merton's immediate reply to the unsuspecting visitor was, no, he's dead from the neck up. Flanagan was already a well-published, very traditional author at Gethsemane when Merton joined the community. And there was certainly some rivalry between them and their views were quite disparate. However, their correspondence is permeated by humor and it shows both men's use of humor to lighten a relationship that in other circumstances could have become problematic. For example, in January, 1949, Father Raymond was in hospital at St. Joseph's Infirmary in Louisville for surgery for colon cancer. And Merton would send him, under the pen name of Poet Luziat, a series of humorous limericks to cheer him up. And here is one of them as an example. The life of a nurse at St. Joe's is easy as nursing life goes. But now that they're nursing a crazy Cistercian, how long they can last, no one knows. As the psalmist writes, how good and how pleasant it is when brothers live in unity. Flavian Burns, Merton's last abbot, described Merton as a boyish type who had a twinkle in his eyes, a very lively person, and to me, very humorous, funny. Burns described Gethsemane in those days as a very serious place where most of the monks kept their eyes down and didn't let on what's going on. But not Merton. Burns continues, he let on, he commented on everything. If it was only by eye movements, a surprised look, or something like that. And again, another monk, Columban Weber, recalls that Merton would often poke fun at various things we did around the monastery, but in a way that we could see the wisdom of it. Frequently, monks joining the community at Gethsemane were unsure of which monk was Merton the most well-known monk in America, if not the whole world. And frequently they've recounted that the real Merton would in fact be their last choice. As from what they'd read, they didn't expect him to be so joyful, but they expected him to be a very serious and much more pious monk. And that wasn't the case. Long before I ever met any monks who knew Merton, I can remember being force, forcefully struck by the story included in Mott's official biography of James Forrest's visit to the monastery. Jim Forrest and Bob Kay, a fellow Catholic worker, had spent three exhausting days hitchhiking to the monastery. Kay went to his guest room, whilst Forrest went in search of the church to offer, he recalls, a prayer of thanksgiving for their safe arrival. And Forrest continues. The church's silence was broken by distant laughter. Laughter so intense and pervasive that I couldn't fail to be drawn to it. It was coming from the guest house. In fact, from Bob's room. The sound was coming mainly from a monk on the floor feet in the air, a bright, bright red face, hands clutching the belly, a shade more Friar Tuck than I imagined any fast chase and Trappist could be. Thomas Merton, author of so many books about such serious subjects, laughing half to death on the floor. And the occasion for the laughter 
was the smell from Kay's socks, having taken his boots off after three days on the road hitchhiking to Gethsemane. Another friend from this period, King Ferry, expecting to meet someone more austere, more solemn, describes how from the outset of their friendship, there was a great deal of laughter. Ferry wrote, he laughed boisterously and he laughed a lot. He was a connoisseur of laughs. In a recording of Merton's where he's reading some sections from the geography of the Grayer into a tape recorder at his hermitage in October 1967. Some of that laughter described by, by Ferry is captured on tape. And there is a wonderful moment when Merton stumbles over his own lines and is unable to control his laughter. Sweet mother rose and gypsy dove. <laughs> Sweet mother rose and a gypsy nun in a new trim toast collar. I saw two wounds coming from a certain... <laughs> I, <laughs> Sorry about the laughing. Bob Dylan did that one time and they kept it on the record, but I guess I'd better go back and start this over again. This is a part that I really like. And luckily for us, Merton didn't go back over and, and start it again, but saved that recording of himself laughing at his own poetry. So I want to move on now to consider the butt of Merton's humour. The forest story leads me on to consider some examples of those subjects of Merton's humour. That story points to an earthiness, a wholesomeness about the human person that is the opposite of the carefully sterilised, sweet-smelling, medicated, pre-packaged consumer that is so often presented to us as an ideal. His friend Ron Seitz would use the word earthy in describing Merton, adding that he could joke at very serious things, but I don't think he was ever scandalous or blasphemous. He could just see the underbelly of many things. Hardly surprisingly, Merton will turn his wit on the world of politics, as well as many of the issues of his day that he's writing about. And the target of this wit could fall anywhere on the political spectrum, from global issues right down to his own Nelson County in Kentucky, as in this following example from Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander. Merton wrote, the Democratic primaries are coming up. There is a man running for jailer who ought to know the job well. He's been in jail four times as a moonshiner. He's a good Catholic too. Everything recommends him for the office. As Herbert Mason commented, Merton was a social idealist, but his humor helped curtail his enthusiasms a humour much in need in our world today. But many of the subjects of Merton's humour are much closer to home. Frequently, it is the eccentricities of the monastic life as lived at Gethsemane, with its fair share of eccentric monks, that conjure up Merton's humour. So, for example, Merton records in Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander, a dire theological conference, which was concluded by the moderator, declaring how good the conference was and that he'd hoped it would have been longer. Merton writes, in any normal gathering, this statement would have been unpopular enough to merit boos and catcalls, if not a near riot. We just stood up and chanted the De Profundus. If you ask me, 
that was significant enough. Or again, when an elderly monk departs the refectory, banging the door in protest at the reading, Merton writes, Pontiffs, Pontiffs, we are all Pontiffs, haranguing one another, brandishing our croziers at one another, dogmatizing, threatening anathemas. Recently in the breviary, we had a saint who at the point of death removed his pontifical vestments and got out of bed. He died on the floor, which is only right. But one hardly has time to be edified by it. One is still musing over the fact that he had his pontifical vestments on in bed. And Merton goes on to ask the question we can all ask ourselves at times. Let us examine our consciences, brethren. Do we wear our mitres even to bed? I'm afraid we sometimes do. Merton's humor in his classes to his students at Gethsemane has been preserved through the hundreds of hours of recordings of these talks here in the archives at the Thomas Merton Center. When he spoke at Our Lady of the Redwoods in 1968, Sister Miriam Dardenne described his style as very conversational and that the laughter was so loud that sometimes you couldn't hear his words. But just one example will have to suffice this evening. So here is Merton using humor to illustrate a point he's making about the meaning of the phrase, giving God your heart. Love consists in giving God our heart, but not just any old way of giving him our heart, because the relationship is important, see. I mean, I give, I give so-and-so my heart. You can write to a movie star, see. Dear Miss Taylor, I give you my heart. See, <laughs> you get a letter back. Miss Taylor, thanks you for your heart. <laughs> I'm Joe Glutz, secretary. <laughs> so far. Well, I mean, you, you could go around giving people your heart. It's real easy to give people your heart when it, when it doesn't mean anything. See. So an example there of some of the laughter that was very frequent in Merton's conferences and also of um, his putting on a funny voice for the students. And at other times, he'll just tell the novices a simple, straightforward, old-fashioned joke. How do you get six elephants into a Volkswagen? Uh, how do, you, do you know that? <laughs> three in the front seat, three in the back seat. <laughs> so, all right. This, <laughs> this, this is, yes. <laughs> no, no, no. That's, that's just one of these useless jokes. There are a lot of elephant jokes going around now, apparently. I just heard, of course, where did I get it from? Brother Albert. He's got the elephant jokes over there. I'll have to get some more elephant jokes. But I mean, that's, that's all right. Well, this is useless. But there may be a reason for saying something like this once in a while, see. And as one would expect, Merton refers with humor to his own peccadilloes, poking fun at his fame, calling himself the tonsured wonder of the Western world, commenting on his relations to his abbot, writing of the relig religious vows that poverty is a cinch, chastity is, a harder, is harder but manageable, obedience is a bugger. Or his relationship to the world, as in his essay, Is the World a Problem? where he rebuffs the image of the world-denying contemplative. The man who spurned New York, spat on Chicago, and tromped on Louisville, heading for the woods with Thoreau in one pocket, John of the Cross in another, and holding the Bible open at the apocalypse. And instead, he asserts the phrase that I've used as the title for this presentation, I love beer, and by that very fact, I love the world. 
Merton would also turn his humor on his own endless health issues. Writing back to his students at Gethsemane from the hospital in Bardstown, Merton gives a humorous, though earthy account of his treatment for hemorrhoids. He writes, I had a spinal and was aware of what the doctor was doing. He started out by saying, this will be really simple. Then after about 45 minutes, he said, well, I'm going to have to do a lot more than I expected. He kept going deeper and deeper. I thought he would come out the other side. And yet Merton still manages to joke. So the doctor and dentist have been keeping me in stitches. Ha ha. And in March 1966, as Merton prepares to enter hospital in Louisville for back surgery, he writes to his friend Robert Lax, describing his current health issues in humorous terms. The back is in a crick, the neck has refused, the vertebra has crumped, the spine has diverged, the head has rolled off, the neck has divided into three. The column hath a stylite sitting on top. I have developed an extra head. Thus I am off to the hospital to have the neck removed. I will return with eyes in the back of my neck. And Merton would also bring this same humor to some of the reflections he would share with the community about his permanent move to the Hermitage in the summer of 1965. Uh, Father Roger is very disappointed that we're not having a procession up to the Hermitage with a, <laughs> with a cross bearer with acolytes and with a thurifer, a deacon and subdeacon and holy water and reverend father and the canopy and <laughs> the blessed sacrament and the nuns of Loretto. <laughs> and then a few weeks later at another conference, he reflects back on his first few days as a hermit. What have I done to deserve this? People putting jocular notes about the hermit life here. Are the ravens feeding you? <laughs> so forth. Well, if you want to know the news of the hermitage, it'll be summed up in three words, snakes in the jakes. <laughs> Dash to the jakes in the middle of the night, there he is, curled up, digesting a rat. <laughs> Great life. <laughs> Merton would often write about that great life in letters to his correspondents, and frequently there's humor scattered throughout those letters, especially in letters to his Columbia classmates and in his letters to young people. And I'm thinking here in particular of Suzanne Butrovich and of John Harris's son, Arthur. Whilst Merton was corresponding with John Harris, who was his intermediary to Boris Pasternak, he also was carrying on a clandestine correspondence with Harris's 12-year-old son. And this is one of Arthur Harris's letters to Merton. And they were addressing each other under the guise of spies with Merton's code name based on his monastic laundry number 127. And so then this is Merton writing back to Arthur Harris. Dear agent, a dangerous man to be watched is a certain Duke William, so-called conqueror. Blow him up if he gets near Hastings, he may give you some trouble. Yours for an independent Cornwall, Agent 127. And there are also numerous examples of Merton's humor in letters to his Columbia classmate, Robert Lax. Their letters are full of 
the inventiveness that they shared with wacky names, fractured syntax, and wildly extravagant, at times, semi-coherent language. And just one quote from those letters will have to give you a, will have to suffice to give you a flavor of them. So in 1968, a small extension was added to his hermitage and Merton writes to Robert Lax, describing it thus. Ho Ho was just here the builder from Bar Swaps for building on the additions to the hutch. Ho Ho, showers, additions and chapels and clusters and towers and verandas and palazzos. Missile silos in the sink, Frigidaires in the rump, bar mit pingspong under the bed, takes planning to make a hutch. And if you look at a book such as The Merton Lacks Correspondence, when prophecy still had a voice, there's just page after page of letters like this. The final area that I want to touch on is humor in Merton's photography. In 1968, in taking up an offer from John Howard Griffin for the loan of a camera, Merton would include in his letter to Griffin a description of the kind of camera that he would need. And he writes, obviously I'm not covering the Kentucky Derby, etc. But I do like a chance at fast, funny, out-of-the-way stuff, too. And scattered throughout Merton's photographs, there are numerous examples of images that obviously met that description. For example, his brethren fooling around as they finished a bottle of communion wine on the morning of his departure for Asia. Or a fishing boat in Alaska bearing his name. Tommy Boy. And probably one of the best known images of this kind, taken in the vicinity of the monastery, and titled by Merton as the only known photograph of God. In 1967, he would send a copy of this photograph to his friend Jim Forrest, writing in his letter to Forrest. In return, I am sending you a photograph of a super, supernatural event, such as occurs around here at every moment, and even more frequently than that, in between the moments. You have to duck all the time to keep from being brained by a supernatural event. In his personal journal, Merton would describe himself as camera shy. However, that shyness doesn't seem evident in some of the photographs of him from the 1960s, where he seems happy to pose or to play for the camera, performing for the camera with a variety of his visitors. For his literary agent, Naomi Burton Stone, who took this photograph of him or this photograph taken by Robert Lax. And later Merton would take this photograph in his journal and would compose a humorous verse to accompany it. The old monk is turned loose and can travel. He's out to see the world. What progress in the last 30 years but his mode of travel is still the same. While with other photographs he would be sent, Merton would sometimes write humorous captions to accompany them. How do you like to buy this joint? Or again, will it drop the bomb? So this has been a bit of a cook's tour of some examples of Merton's humor. 
So what are we to make of this jovial monk? I think it becomes clear from Merton's life and work that though he may have laughed a lot, it was humor St. Benedict would have approved of. Not sarcasm or ridicule at the expense of others. Frequently, Merton uses his irreverence in his conferences and correspondence to temper truth, to point out the falseness of whatever sacred cows he perceives. From the larger world, down through the church, to the community at Gethsemane, and never failing to include the tonsured wonder of the Western world. So perhaps we too need to be able to stop brandishing our croziers and wearing our mitres to bed, and instead, like Merton, be able to laugh at our own idiosyncrasies and those of our world. Remembering, as Harvey Cox suggests, that laughter is hope's last weapon. Laughter is hope's last weapon. So, by way of conclusion, it's time to brush the dog and fling out the cat and wash the coffee and drench the treat and put away the muskrats and empty the globbage. There is always too ample for globbage. But I want to leave the final word to Merton as he records with humor a biographical statement to be published with one of his poems. Might as well read this curriculum vitae, which was written to go with that Dahlberg poem in the Festschrift. Since this is a mixed up tape anyway, might as well put every piece of junk on it. Born in 1915 in southern France, a few miles from Catalonia, so that I imagine myself by birth Catalan, and am accepted as such in Barcelona, where I have never been. Exiled, therefore, from Catalonia, I came to New York, then went to Bermuda, then back to France, then to school at Montauban, then to school at Oakham in England, to Clare College, Cambridge, where my scholarship was taken away after a year of riotous living, to Columbia University, New York, where I earned two degrees of dullness and wrote a master's thesis on Blake. Taught English among Franciscan football players at St. Bonaventure University, and then became a Trappist monk at Gethsemane, Kentucky in 1941. First published book of poems, 1944. Autobiography, 1948, created a general hallucination, followed by too many pious books. Back to poetry in the 50s and 60s. Gradual backing away from the monastic institution until I now live alone in the woods, not claiming to be anything except, of course, a Catalan, but a Catalan in exile who would not return to Barcelona under any circumstances, never having been there. Recently published, Raids on the Unspeakable, Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander, Mystics and Zen Masters, have translated works of poets like Vallejo, Alberti, Hernandez, Nicanor Parra, etc. Proud of facial resemblance to Picasso and or Jean Genet, or alternately Henry Miller, though not so much Miller. Well, I hope there haven't been too many degrees of dullness this evening or too much globbage. But whatever, maybe it's time to go and get that beer. Thank you for this opportunity to share with you this evening and thank you especially to the, the Tuesdays with Merton committee for all their work through the last year or so and then making it possible to record this session for this evening. So thank you to Teresa, to Dan and to Alan. And I wish you a, a blessed Advent and a blessed Christmas. Thank you.
Thank you, Paul, for that delightful insight into Merton's personality. Uh, and now I would like to invite Emma McDonald uh, to respond or, or pre present us with some thoughts about um, the, um, uh, the insights that you gave us. Uh, Emma is a doctoral candidate in theological ethics at Boston College. Prior to matriculating at BC, Emma received her Master of Arts in Religion from Yale Divinity School, where she co-led the Roman Catholic Fellowship and founded a Thomas Merton Reading Group. She currently serves on the board of the International Thomas Merton Society. Emma? Thank you, Teresa, and thank you, Paul Pearson, for a wonderful and lively lecture on Merton's humor. I especially appreciate the recordings of Merton laughing and the photographs of Merton that Paul was able to include. Many of those were new to me, but evoked the spirit of Merton that I've come to know through his writings. The topic reminded me of something Robert Lacks wrote in a journal following the death of multiple friends of his. He writes, I remember the people I love to have died or who've just disappeared remember their traits as though it were a sacred duty. This line seems fitting for this particular Tuesdays with Merton. Dwelling on Merton's sense of humor helps capture what I find so captivating about him. He seems like a real person. In Lax's poem, Remembering Merton and New York, he fulfills that sacred duty and names genuine liveliness as Merton's major characteristic. The photographs, audio clips, and remembrances Paul shared make it all the easier to imagine Merton as genuinely lively. I want to take up Paul's point at the end of his lecture and consider what kind of greater existential point this silliness might offer. Lax goes on to describe Merton's penchant for parody in that same poem in more detail. He says, much of what he did, if relaxed in company, He'd do as though it were a parody of what he was doing, as though he were imitating someone in the comic strips, the way you might open a bottle of champagne as a parody of someone doing it and take the whammy off any even slightly pretentious activities. He goes on further. Praising was done by parody too. He'd say something, any little sad thing was capital and laugh. Merton's parody of the conventional seems to be a way of preserving sincerity by undercutting any sense of posturing that comes from taking oneself too seriously. Adding a layer of humor highlights that limited capacity for human language and behavior to communicate the truth, the possibility that the words we choose and the actions we take will be corrupted. Merton was also concerned about the use of language to construct a world of what he calls arbitrary values without life and meaning, full of sterile agitation. In his message to poets read at a gathering of Latin American poets in Mexico City in 1964, Merton disclosed his suspicion of what he calls word magic, or the impurity of language and of spirit in which words deliberately reduced to unintelligibility appeal mindlessly to the vulnerable will. For the poet, Merton thinks, there is precisely no magic. There's only life in all its unpredictability and all its freedom. How do we best express this unpredictability and freedom and critique this false word magic? Merton calls on his fellow poets to parody, saying, let us deride and parody this magic with other variants of the unintelligible, if we want to. Parody and humor preserve poetry's innocent improvisational quality, conveying what Merton calls the flowering of ordinary possibilities. Merton's loyalty to humor and levity seem to support his retreat to the hermitage as his frustrations with monastic solemnity multiplied. In his essay, Day of a Stranger, Merton laments how even monastic life is caught up with clarity and definition to the point of agitation, remarking, people are running all around with packages of meaning. Each is very anxious to know whether all the others have received the latest messages. Has someone else received a message that he has not received? Will they be willing to pass it on to him? Will he understand it when it is passed on? Will he have to argue about it? Will he be expected to clear his throat and stand up and say, 
Well, the way I look at it, St. Benedict said, Merton responds with levity to this, concluding, St. Benedict saw that the best thing to do with the monastic life was to cool it, but today everybody is heating it up. Maybe to cool it, you have to be a hermit, but then they will keep thinking that you have got a special message. When they find out you haven't, well, that's their worry, not mine. Merton also describes his hermit life humorously in a 1967 letter to Susan Chapoulis, a sixth grader studying monasticism, remarking, a monk who lives all by himself in the woods is called a hermit. There is a rock and roll outfit called Herman and his hermits, but they are not the same thing. The power of parody to cut through pretension is important to Merton's social critique as well. In corresponding with Rosemary Radford Ruther, Merton's concern that prophetic voices can end up engaging in a, quote, demonic parody of the kingdom, end quote, reminds us that even those working for justice are susceptible to the sins of ego and self-interest. In his analysis of Merton's letter to Ruther, Robert Ancosti summarizes Merton's point as being, it's not enough to see through others' pretensions, we must see through our own. And that means we cannot simply enter the political arena with the hope of defeating falsehood if we are carrying the germ of falsehood within ourselves. To me, Merton's sense of humor is both appealing and essential because it rightly expresses the limits of language and the truth of the unpredictability of the ordinary. As Merton famously remarks in New Seeds of Contemplation, what is serious to men is often very trivial in the sight of God. What in God might appear to us as play is perhaps what he himself takes most seriously. Merton's liveliness is inextricably tied to his contemplative spirit, his social critique, and his mysticism. Humor alerts us to the potential for language to be misused toward sinister ends of deception or the building up of ego. Finding joy in the dynamism of daily life is a form of resistance to a sinful world that threatens any effort toward true solidarity. By way of conclusion, I wanted to mention Patrick F. O'Connell's new edited volume of Merton's commentary on Genesis and Exodus. Reading this, I was struck by Merton dwelling on the laughter of Abraham and Sarah in Genesis as they react to God's impossible promise. Merton encourages his novices to laugh, remarking, the only way out of contradiction is laughter, a supreme affirmation of a belief that goes beyond the contrary terms of a dilemma, the laughter of a mystical liberation. As Paul's presentation has demonstrated, Merton embodied this sense of mystical liberation through laughter in his own life. As he remarked to Lax in a letter in 1963, let all the glad abandon vain hopes and laugh until silly. There is little else to do, but plenty to laugh at. Thank you so much, Emma, for those interesting uh, and observations about uh, Merton and uh, religion and laughter. And now I'd like to introduce Paul Pinkusky. Paul Pinkusky lives in Toronto, Canada. He recently retired from two decades of refereeing hockey and 30 years in public service, including two terms as vice president of his union. He is a member of the Church of the Redeemer, where he organized a lecture series on the legacy of Thomas Merton. He currently serves as secretary of the board of the International Thomas Merton Society. Paul? Thank you, Teresa. Uh, first, I want to thank Teresa and Dan and Alan for the opportunity to participate in this evening's Tuesdays with Merton session. Second, I wish to make clear how Paul Pearson's presentation has inspired me. Instead of enjoying my usual glass of wine for these sessions, I have tonight poured a glass of Trappist ale imported to Canada from a monastery in Belgium. Paul Pearson has offered us this evening a collection of cartoons, limericks, stories, and anecdotes that illustrate Thomas Merton's sense of humor. He illustrated this humor running through every part of Merton's life, 
his writing, his teaching, his relationships, and his ability to even laugh at himself. The story Paul cited of Merton rolling on the floor in laughter at the smell of a guest's soiled socks is a longtime favorite. First heard directly from Jim Forrest as we sat around our dining room table with my wife Tanya and with Cassidy Hall. When I place tonight's offering in the larger context of Dr. Pearson's writing, it seems to me that he's often written of Merton in ways that insist that we see Merton the human being. His interview with Father James Connor in volume 23 of the Merton Annual focuses on Merton's humor, his teaching style, and his approach as a spiritual director. But it also, it also touches on his ability to deal with conflict, his back and stomach ailments, and his interest in planting trees. Paul's fine essay in volume 18 focuses on Merton as an artist. He includes the influence of Merton's parents and in the section on photography, draws our attention to the fact that it was the mundane objects around Gethsemane that caught Merton's attention, stumps, broken baskets and old buildings. Another of Paul's essays explores how local geography helped shape Paul Merton's spiritual vision. The geography and the objects that captured Merton's attention get more extended treatment in his recent book, Beholding Paradise. The gift in all of this is that he does not allow us to isolate Merton's poetry, writing, or photography from Merton, the actual human person. We are not allowed to separate Merton at prayer from Merton in conflict with Father Raymond or Dom James. Paul's explorations refuse to allow us to isolate the part of Merton that interests us and forget the rest. Looking at the whole Merton, the human Merton, provokes for me a question of sanctity, holy living, or if you prefer, sainthood. Perhaps this arises from Paul Pearson's talk in combination with seeing boxes of information on Dorothy Day being shipped to the Vatican this past week. Sainthood was an ongoing interest for Merton. He approached that subject with humor in his book, Life and Holiness. In a section that had me laughing out loud, he wrote of plaster saints, saying the saint, if he ever sinned at all, eventually became impeccable after a perfect conversion. He flings himself into the fire, into ice water or briars, rather than even face a remote occasion for sin. Plaster saints are without humor, as they are without wonder, without feeling, and without interest in the common affairs of men. Yet, of course, they always rush to the scene with the precise act of virtue called for by every situation. They are always there, kissing the leper's sores at the very moment when the king and his noble attendants come around the corner and stop in their tracks in mute admiration. In opposition, Merton writes, our love of God and man cannot be merely symbolic. It has to be completely real. He goes on to suggest that the holiness of the plaster saint is actually a denial of our humanity. Merton insists against this popular misconception that, quote, before a man can become a saint, he must first of all be a man in all the humanity and fragility of man's actual condition. Not only were all the saints perfectly human, not only did their sanctity deepen and enrich their humanity, but the holiest of all the saints, the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, was himself the most deeply and perfectly human being that lived on the face of the earth. Sanctity is not a matter of being less human, but more human. This implies a greater capacity for concern, for suffering, for understanding, for sympathy, and also for humor, for joy, for appreciation of the good and beautiful things of life. Like that beer. Any view of sanctity that diminishes our humanity is a sin against the incarnation. True holiness, Merton suggests, means we are windows through which God's mercy shines on the world. Holiness is relational. Every man is to the Christian, he says, in some sense, a brother. The will of God is therefore manifested to the Christian above all in the commandment to love. 
Reading this after hearing Dr. Pearson's talk, I cannot help but notice Merton's emphasis on humor. False holiness is marked by lack of humor, lack of concern for others, and is devoid of wonder. True holiness shows itself in humor, in compassion, and in an appreciation for beauty. Sandra Schneider's, in a 1993 ITMS presentation, suggested that the secret of Merton's attractiveness to us is that he is holy. She offered that Merton, because of his many failings, does not fit the classical picture of the saint, suggesting that if holiness is what attracts us to Merton, we certainly have to think again about holiness. Paul Pearson's exploration of Merton's humor then allows us to begin to think again about holiness, grounds us in the human, the temporal, the concrete. It provokes me to ask whether both Merton's humor and Merton's many failings can be seen as part of his sanctity. Paul's focus on Merton's humor, along with his other explorations of Merton the person, open the possibility of Thomas Merton being a model of sanctity that is free of hagiography. It would be a sanctity that includes love of beer and love of the world. It would be a sanctity that is as earthy as it is grace-filled. Canonization may be an unlikely prospect for Thomas Merton, but for those most of us gathered here this evening, there can be little doubt that his life was and is a window through which God's mercy shines on the world. This provides an opportunity for us to reconsider sanctity, not only in Merton, but in those around us whose humor, failings and wisdom may be windows through which mercy shines. Thank you. Thank you, Emma and Paul. That was interesting as obviously Paul Pearson's presentation was. Um, one of the beauties of the International Thomas Merton Society is we gather to learn not only from Merton, but from each other. And in that spirit, I'm going to ask you just <clears throat> each one simple question, the same question to both, and then we'll throw it back to Teresa to wrap up given the, the time. So you both had a a preview of what Paul was going to bring to us tonight to uh, to put together a few thoughts. In the interest of learning not only about Merton, but from both of you, I'm intrigued. How did your preparation for tonight affect you personally? So, Paul, do you want to go first? We'll reverse the order, and then Emma, and then back to Teresa. It's, um... How did your preparation tonight affect you personally? It, it made me go back and look for places where Merton used humor in his, in his writing. And one of the things that jumped out at me was that ridiculous parody of the plaster saint in Life and Holiness. And uh, that just got me thinking about, about Merton and canonization, about uh, holiness and, huma and, and our humanness. Um, and I just... Um, and then when I started, that made me think about what else have I read of Paul's? And, uh, and when I started to think about that, it was always, it was always Paul grounding our picture of Merton in Thomas Merton, the person, and not Thomas Merton, the thinker, or Thomas Merton, the writer. So it, again, it just brought me back to looking at the whole person and um, making sure that, that we appreciate the whole person. And that's, Getting to know the whole person allows, I guess, allows that mercy, allows that that picture of 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 the divine to shine through. Yeah. Thanks for that question, Ellen. Um, I think what stood out for me was when I watched the recording of Paul um, earlier in the week. I was so struck um, listening to the recordings of Merton laughing and of the novices laughing, his audiences laughing, um, and just seeing Paul also looking so cheerful um, as he listened and seeing that feeling myself smiling too. And then this time around watching um, others on video on the Zoom call and seeing the same reaction and that kind of sense of um, community, I think that comes from sharing and laughter has been really striking and has just, I think, 
been a good um, experience for me to have more gratitude for that levity and and what it brings to community. And I think I've been thinking about um, people I know and love and thinking about them in um, in that laughing mode. And I I don't know that I often when I think about people I um, first go to like a memory of them laughing, but it does seem to capture something so essential to their humanity. So I think um, I'll have to do that more. So that's been something I've taken from Paul's presentation beyond just Merton as a laughing monk, but um, everyone um, as having that kind of essential laughter in them. Thank you very much. You reminded me of the Quaker meeting where I attended for many, many years had a wonderful picture of Jesus and the title was The Laughing Jesus. So there you go. Teresa, back to you. All right. Well, thank you so much, Emma and Paul, for being with us this evening. And again, uh, in absentia, thanks to Paul Pearson for the wonderful uh, talk that inspired your comments. I want to extend a special thanks to Father Dan Horan and the Spirituality Center at St. Mary's College for providing the Zoom platform and technical support for Tuesdays with Merton. Thanks also to Alan Colt, who always so skillfully moderates the, uh, the questions and conversation, to Bob Grip, who posts the webinars on YouTube, and to Mark Mead, who makes them available for us as podcasts. You can find links to the recordings of previous webinars at merton.org ITMS. There you'll also find information about the International Thomas Merton Society. If you are not already a member, please consider supporting the work of the ITMS by becoming a member or making a donation. Next month on Tuesdays with Merton, actor and playwright Doug Hurtler will speak on Merton, You and Me, The Reality of Life in the Paschal Mystery. The registration link for his presentation will soon be posted on the ITMS website. So now, goodbye, stay safe, thanks for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you in January.